Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Coronavirus cases continue to decline in both New York and New Jersey. We'll get an update. A sense that we are beyond turning the corner. We are emerging from this. The lack of movement in the Garden State on a reparations task force bill in the state legislature. Money and power are invested in the status quo. WBGO's Kenneth Burns reports on the battle between history and development in Camden. Lawnside was a place where you had free black people as early as 1700. And WBGO's Rhythm Review host Felix Hernandez chats with Grammy Award-winning singer Irma Thomas and Michael Murphy, the producer of the new documentary, Irma, My Life in Music. Develop your own style, develop who you want to be and who you're comfortable with. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Coronavirus continues to greatly recede in New York State. The latest daily report shows 2,700 new coronavirus cases. Governor Kathy Hochul says that shows a continuous trend downward over the past 47 days since the winter surge peak. These are truly good numbers. This is a cause of optimism, a sense that we are beyond turning the corner, we are emerging from this. Since we suspended our indoor mask requirements, mask or vaccination requirement, we've not seen an increase in cases, which is what we've been monitoring very closely. So that again is very good news. The seven-day average positivity rate is about 2% in New York State. The number of hospitalizations has dropped to less than 2,300. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy says his last regularly scheduled COVID briefing will be next Friday, March 4th. That marks two years since the state's first COVID case was reported. With cases and hospitalizations on the decline, the state's high vaccination rate and the mass mandate for schools coming to an end, the governor says there's no longer a need to deliver an update from the War Memorial in Trenton. However, should the need arise, we will not hesitate to reconvene here. And please God, that need will not arise. Governor Murphy says he's not the only governor to deliver briefings on the pandemic, but he adds he is proud to have held more than others. The governor, by his count, held more than 250 of them. Governor Murphy noted the need to move beyond the pandemic, a theme that he has been commenting on for several weeks. New Jersey's school mask mandate ends March 7th, but after that it will be up to school districts and child care centers to decide whether to continue with masks. State Health Commissioner Judy Persichelli, in announcing new guidelines from her agency, says institutions should use masks in certain situations, like a local outbreak or when a student or child is exposed to COVID. While masks will not be required by the state as of March 7th, they remain an important part of a layered approach against COVID-19 and are recommended in certain circumstances. Percy Kelly adds that vaccination and boosters and staying home when feeling ill continue to be critically important in disease prevention. The guidance also recommends that schools and child care centers consult local health departments when making decisions. The call for reparations for African Americans has gained traction in recent years, but getting lawmakers to act on it has proven difficult. In New Jersey, where Democrats control both the legislature and the governor's office, there appears to be little enthusiasm for talking about the issue. WBGO's Tennyson Donier has more. New Jersey's reparations task force bill would only commission a study on the negative impacts of slavery and racist policies, not actually pay reparations to descendants of enslaved New Jerseyans. That's why it's baffling to some why lawmakers haven't acted on the measure since it was first introduced in 2019. 
Passaic County Assemblywoman Shavonda Sumter is the bill's primary sponsor. These type of uh, bills require intellectual um, courage to move past the emotion of what some may think is not important. Courage from a Democratic legislature uh, who has uh, received over 90% of support from black voters. According to historians, there was a time when New Jersey was known as the slave state of the North. It was the last Northern state to abolish slavery. Long after New Jersey ended slavery, freed black people were still subjected to racist treatment and discriminatory policies and banking practices. Anastasia Mann is a historian who teaches a course on reparations at Princeton University. She says black New Jerseyans have always been at the forefront of the reparations movement. And I think what's stopping us is what has always stopped us, which is that there is basically money and power are invested in the status quo. There are people who who make money off racial racial segregation. Senate President Nick Scutari says he hadn't read Sumter's bill yet. Assembly Speaker Craig Coughlin declined to comment. Tennyson Donye, WBGO News. During our Ask Governor Murphy call-in show hosted by Nancy Solomon this week here on WBGO, State House reporter Tennyson Donye asked Governor Murphy about why the reparations task force idea is not getting much attention in the state legislature. So we put together, and I announced it last Juneteenth, a wealth disparity task force. And it's populated with incredible talent. Um, and the wealth disparities, I think it's worth taking a second if we have a second here, Nance. Yeah, yeah. The wealth disparities in this state are jaw-dropping. And Tennyson, you may have the exact numbers, but it is something like this. The average African-American family's net worth is $6,500, $6,800. A Latino family is maybe another 1000 7500 An average white family last year, I think $245,000. And so the Wealth Disparity Task Force has, is its remit, what the heck, how do we get here, and what are we going to do about it? Now, again, we're, we're the stronger, fairer administration, so from the get-go, we've been disproportionately investing in correcting and curing inequities. So we're on a journey already, but the question is what more, those numbers are jaw-dropping, what more do you need to do? And if you look at black and brown communities and how we got to those awful disparities, they got, this is back to Tennyson's question, you get there uh, some similar reasons, but some very different reasons. And slavery is the big one that jumps out at you. And so the question is, there's a separate bill, I'm not sure what its status is in the legislature, which is specific to the reparation piece, the slavery piece explicitly within that overall wealth disparity. You know, what's the actual, what's the history? New Jersey's history is pretty awful. Um, you know, last state to ratify the 13th Amendment, a very significant slave trade uh, among the weak players of the northern states, mm. at least. Um, acknowledging that, trying to quantify, you know, and then what do you, what do you do about it? What's the realistic, what's the federal government do? What can we do? I do know this, that addressing and investing aggressively in curing inequities, whether it's your, a wealth disparity task force or you're discussing the damages of slavery and reparations specifically, uh, I know that 
aggressive investing and addressing those and, and, and curing those inequities has been and will continue to be part of our mindset. But we literally talk about this all the time. I can't speak for the legislation as to why that is where it is, but I do know that we are full speed ahead in the Wealth Disparity Task Force. And if the legislature were to pass a reparations bill, you would sign it? We, I, ne- I never comment on something like that because I don't know what it looks like. So, But the notion of trying to get our arms around this um, is something that we are not just conceptually good with, but we're proving it with this wealth disparity task force. The wealth disparity task force casts an even broader net, frankly. If you missed the February episode of Ask Governor Murphy, you can go to wbgo.org news and hear the entire one-hour program. The borough of Lawnside in Camden County has a rich African-American history that includes being a stop on the Underground Railroad, but some longtime residents are concerned that history is being set aside for development. WBGO's Kenneth Burns reports. On a cold Saturday along Warwick Avenue, several Lawnside residents stood next to Borough Hall with signs that said, Stop the steal of our land and no more warehouses. It's a busy road that connects to Whitehorse Pike and 295. The protest was led by 96-year-old Ida Conaway. Known by some as Mother Lawnside, she has lived here since 1959 after moving from North Philly. Conaway says there are plans to put up two more warehouses behind her house. There are two already on Oak Avenue and they're putting up two more and the industrial park back there right in back of my house. The warehouses are part of the Oak Avenue redevelopment plan being built by Vineland Construction Company. It's a mixed-use development that stretches across 135 acres. The project not only includes those warehouses, but regional operations for New Jersey American Water and the new national headquarters for boiler manufacturer IBC. There's also a new apartment complex, all close to the Woodcrest Packco station. Eventually, a pedestrian bike path, public pocket parks, and open space will be built as well. Vineland Construction did not return requests for an interview, but the company says the development fulfills a vision of its late owner, Bernard Brown, to bring jobs to Lawnside and Greater South Jersey. Borough Mayor Marianne Wardlow also did not respond to requests for comment. In a 2019 video, when she accepted Camden County's Freedom Medal, she reflected on her borough's need to preserve its rich history while making sure it has a place in the future. Lawnside has such history and I'm trying to push more for that. But we also have to progress. And that's something that I'm trying to fulfill. It's the history that many longtime residents feel is being paved over for that progress. Lawnside was a place where you had free Black people as early as 1700s. That's Linda Shockley, president of the Lawnside Historical Society. She says the location and its proximity to the Quakers, who became staunchly opposed to slavery, made the area now known as Lawnside an ideal place for enslaved blacks to escape to freedom. There was a book called The True Story of Lawnside by Charles Smiley, where he makes reference to the wooded areas. And in some of the freedom stories of our families, uh, they talk about people escaping here. Lawnside, first known as Freehaven and later Snow Hill, was a stop on the Underground Railroad. A man named Peter Mott played a vital role in helping slaves escape, doing so from his home and the Mount Pisgah AME Church where he was Sunday school superintendent. The oral tradition is that he took enslaved people 
in his wagon to the Quakers who were staunch abolitionists in Haddonfield and Moorestown. Mott's house, now owned by the Historical Society, still stands as an underground railroad museum. Lawnside would become the only antebellum black community to be incorporated in New Jersey in 1926. Outside Borough Hall, Ida Conaway sits bundled up in her wheelchair as people honk their horns in support of the protest. Joining her is Michelle Vickers, another longtime resident. My mother lives right where they want to put those doggone warehouses. Vickers says she doesn't understand the need for more warehouses in Lawnside. I'm working and we paying taxes and then behind our backs, you know, we're getting warehouses to do what? Warehouses in New Jersey overall are hot commodities. Real estate firm Newmark says the vacancy rate dropped below 3% late last year for warehouse space in Central and North Jersey. While in South Jersey, warehouse construction projects total into millions of square feet, according to various reports. Irvin Mears is running for mayor. He says Lawnside was not created to be a major commercial hub. The town spirit is about housing and a place to raise your families, your churches, your schools, things like that. It was never to be commercialized as it is today. Over at Station Place, the new luxury apartment complex, some residents are aware of Lawnside's history. Chris Kosofsky moved in from Cherry Hill as he prepares to retire from his job as a police officer next door in Haddonfield. He understands why the borough is interested in the development to boost the tax base, but he's concerned about the amount of construction he says is springing up everywhere. I think it's becoming too congested and um, it's just every little square patch of green grass is being developed into something. Other residents like Michael Lee was not aware of Lawnside's history. He just moved here from Freehold. And speaking as a newcomer, he thought development is helpful to the borough. It's like close to Patco. It's relatively more affordable than some other places in the area. So I think it's good if you just kind of want to introduce more people to the community. Linda Shockley, who was also among the protesters that Saturday, says that she isn't against growth, but she wants growth that is beneficial and helpful to the community. For the WBGO Journal, I'm Kenneth Burns in Lawnside, Camden County. Irma, My Life in Music is a 90-minute documentary airing on PBS stations. Its glorious subject, Irma Thomas, the soul queen of New Orleans, and the film's producer, Michael Murphy, recently joined Felix Hernandez, host of Rhythm Review, for a lively conversation. Irma Thomas, you're a soul survivor. You started with, was it Tommy Ridgely, correct? Was yeah. Tommy Ridgely's band? Yeah. In, in New Orleans. Um, yeah. You were you were still you were still a teenager when, when yeah, you started singing, right? I sure was. And you, uh, of course, started in the church, as did a lot of singers of your generation. Oh Lord, I grew up in the church. I mean that that was that was a given. You went to church on Sundays, or you didn't do anything else as a child. If you didn't go to Sunday school or our church or both on a Sunday, you couldn't go to the movies. Uh, to the sweet shop, because we used to have a sweet shop where they had a jukebox and we would go around there and we'd dance to the music. But if you didn't go to church and Sunday school, you couldn't go to the sweet shop and you couldn't go to the movie. What songs were on that jukebox? Do you remember? Yeah, early uh, so Lightning Hopkins, the Drifters, you know, early Drifters and people of that, that, of that era. Mm -hmm. We mentioned the Drifters. It's interesting because, the, you know, that was one of the first R&B groups that really sounded like a gospel group. And, well, they're the uh, ones I, that made There Goes My Baby. 
There goes my baby. And I'm thinking there even goes before my that. Baby, moving on down the line. You made your first records. Was it uh, Ron? Ron Company? Was it the Ron, Ron Records? Ron, yeah. Ron. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rick and, and Ron. They had two labels, Rick and Ron. And I think I was on the Ron's label. And Johnny Adams was with you, right? Johnny Adams was there too. He was already there when I got there. He had made at that time, I think he had I Won't Cry out at the time. And your song was a big hit. I didn't Don't know that because I didn't know anything about having charts and all that stuff. I was just happy to make a record. <laughs> oh, why was that? I mean, you, I, it, it did chart. I mean, Don't Mess With My Man was a chart record. You weren't aware of that? No. Oh, was not aware. I was, I was as naive as naive could be. I was just happy to sing, happy to have a record out. I had told my neighbors, because where I lived that on the, on the canal, which is, is now Melpamine Street, but it was right next to one of the local canals. And I told my girlfriend who lived right next door to me and all the neighbors who were in the other part of the rooming house, I had a record coming out and they looked at me like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I told them the title of it. And then when it came out, they said, well, she really does have a record out. You can have my husband, but please don't mess with my man. You can have my husband, but please don't mess with my man. I'm telling all you women, I want you all to understand. Well, that's how naive I was. I, you know, when I heard it on the radio, I was tickled to death. I didn't, I didn't know anything about record charts and, you know, whether or not it was selling or not, because I never got any royalties from it. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> what was the next big step for you after that first record? Going over to moving over to Minute. And who who helped you with that? I, mean, I had done two records on the Ron label. I did the Don't Mess With My Man, and I did another one, I think, I Got A Good Man or something like that. I don't even know what was on the other side of it, to tell you the truth. Uh, and then I had a, 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 a lull in, in the recording session, like sessions. I didn't have anything done for about a year. And then I went over to, they were having an audition for Minute Record people to come to Minute Records. And I went over and I auditioned for Minute Records and they weren't looking for a female at the time. So. <laughs> oh, what, they already had one? <laughs> no, I, they didn't. I was only, in fact, come to think of it, for the whole time I was on that label, I was the only one for, for a couple of years when they finally decided that I was worthy of being recorded. Well, know, I think it was a good decision Alan, on Alan their part. Alan was the one who was doing the, the, the auditioning, and I blamed him for not accepting me. But he said, Ernie, I had nothing to do with it. I, I, I told them that you had the voice, and they decided that they didn't want to deal with a female. So finally, they got around to dealing with the female, and it was me. Right. Now, now you, the, the, Alan, you mentioned is Alan Toussaint, I would assume, uh -huh, right? Right. Uh -huh. Was he your mentor? Was he the person that enabled you to make that next step in your career? Or well, he, he was the one who was responsible for writing all the songs that was was on the radio that had each. They were playing both sides of the record. The first uh, the first re recording session I did with Alan was called Cry On. And on the flip side of Cry On was called I Did My Part. And on the radio, they were like number one and number two on the radio, on the local radio stations, on all of the local radio stations. Mm -hmm. And like I still didn't know, you know, how great that was. <laughs> <laughs> I was just enjoying the fact that I was getting right. gigs for a change. <laughs> right, you still weren't there. I, I, I think, well, that was probably the more important part for you was being able to sing, right. not, not so much having the record. I mean, once you make right. the record, it's done. It's and, it's and I was learning that you could actually make a living doing that. Just singing in general. 
Yes. You know, when you're a waitress making uh, $4 a night plus whatever tips, and then you have a record out that that you get a record out on the market and then you can you can you can demand fifty dollars, which most folks won't even make that kind of money a whole week. I thought I was making big bucks, <laughs> not realizing I could have probably yeah. made three hundred and fifty dollars. I didn't know. No, I had no one telling me, you know, I didn't have a manager per se to tell me, OK, this is what we're going to do or how we're going to do it. I, a lot of the stuff I learned by trial and error and, you know. Tommy giving me a few pointers on some things. Other than that, I had no clue as to the business aspect of it. I didn't really start learning the business aspect of it to some years later. Then I start, you know, when I went back to school and went to business studies and what have you, I realized that you need to read your contract a little bit more thorough. Yeah, you, you need don't to read it, period. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of glad I didn't know any better because I probably would not have been able to handle big bucks because I wasn't accustomed to having that kind of money. So I learned gradually how to handle money. And as I started making more money, I was able to handle it much better. So everything happens for a reason. I, you know, right. I'm not well, angry probably, with anybody about that situation. And you probably had a better time for it too. You had more oh, fun. Yeah. And, oh yeah, definitely. When did you start touring beyond an area that was comfortable for you outside of New Orleans or outside of uh, Louisiana, or even the southeastern part of the country? Well, it was weird because with Don't Mess With My Man, I went on uh, one little one-week tour with Bill Senegal and his band, and Robert Parker, who played the solo on Don't Mess With My Man, was a part of the band that I was touring with at the time. And we we went to areas like we played small towns in Mississippi and small towns in Alabama. Uh, we went to to Pensacola, Florida, and worked our way back. So I was only out for like a week. Uh, and then after that, there was a gentleman named Percy Stovall who start, who was at that time booking major acts. And Stovall would play all of the major um, uh, military bases, you know, all of the armories and what have you. And uh, I was working with him, but there was another gentleman named uh, Ed White not the Ed White we know that has the booking agency now, but another Ed White uh, that had a little station wagon and we piled everything in the station wagon and we went the same places like down along the Mississippi coast and into the, to Alabama and some parts of Florida and some parts of Georgia. But, you know, I mean, I was making $50 a night. I thought I was making big bucks. Right. Now we hear stories about um, African-American artists uh, touring the South in the 60s and mm -hmm. uh, some of the problems they encountered. Did, did any of this happen to you? We had places we couldn't stay. We, we, a lot of the nights when we were on the road, if we couldn't drive back to New Orleans, we, we, the, the gentleman who I was touring with, they knew all of the houses where people had more than one room that they would let out to us to spend the night to rest before they coming back to New Orleans. But 95% of the time we would go to areas where we could drive back to the city and then go back out again. So there was a lot of back and forth traveling during those times. But on, on occasions where we didn't want to drive all the way back to New Orleans, they had ladies or, you know, husband and wives who had big homes who had more than one bedroom that they would let out to to the entertainers who were out there traveling. So but there was no place to there were no hotels to be able to check into and spend the night and get a good night's rest and a good shower and all that kind of stuff.
when I interviewed you back in 1984, we were talking a little bit about uh, time is on my side. Uh -huh. uh, did you expect the Rolling Stones to come out with that song after you had done they it? They told me that they were going to record it. So, you know, I had no problems with that. They, that it was Keith and, and Mick. Both of them were there. And they, they told me how much they loved the song and, and they were enjoying the show and uh, that they were going to record it. But I'm sure they didn't know and neither did I, did I know that they were going to have the hit. It just so happened that at the time they did it, they had what they call the British invasion here in the United States. And anything that was from somebody British became a hit record overnight. And so consequently, they their version of Time is on My Side became the hit. Mine was, I think it was rising in the charts, but it hadn't made it up in the higher parts of the charts, but it was rising. But once they came out with theirs, it no longer became my song. It became the Rolling Stones song. And I got tired of explaining that to people, so I stopped doing it. The uh, documentary that's coming up, Michael yeah. Murphy, a uh, gentleman I worked with uh, also many, many years ago, uh, has uh, produced a, a, a film about Irma Thomas. Uh, Michael, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, it's called Up From The Streets. That's the first film that I did that uh, sort of got really widely recognized. And then after I did that film, YES called me and said, hey, you know, you want to do a documentary on Irma? And uh, I immediately contacted Irma and Irma said, sure. Irma knew my, knew my work and uh, she just said, absolutely, let, let's do this. And, um, you know, the response has been really wonderful to to the film to the documentary and one thing that was so wonderful to work with with Irma was that a lot of times when you're doing documentaries the artists they want to see rough cuts they want to approve what you're doing they want to they want to sort of be very hands-on and I contacted Irma and I said you know I think we had a phone call and I said so as we're doing this you know is there a procedure and she just said I know the work you and your wife, Solista, do. So I trust you completely. You you have my confidence, and uh, and, and that that gave us a lot of freedom in terms of our creative thinking and how to tell the story. And uh, you know, it it was hard because you know trying to tell the story of Irma's life and career in ninety minutes was really hard uh we had we kept on having to trim back because it's, it's such a rich rich story you know d during the process of making making the documentary it brought me back to 1990 when i first filmed irma and alan doing a show and over the years so it's uh it was a very rewarding project and i'm just so happy that it's resonated so well with people all over across the country um, Irma has said she's really happy with it. Oh, yeah. I didn't think they had enough information to tell an hour and a half work on me. <laughs> uh, that would be okay. interesting. <laughs> it was there. How long did it take to make the film? Uh, this, this one was, for us, it was, it was quick. Um, and it took about seven months total. And Luckily, luckily, I was able to tap into the archives that my wife and I had built up over 30, 33, 34 years. The New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival Foundation 
purchase the archive from us, but we have the ability to go in and use any footage or interviews, performances, whatever that we want to use. So having that archive helped us tell the story uh, in seven months. A lot of times these projects will take us two or three years to get done, but uh, we, we knew the content. WYS was great to work with. Irma was fabulous to work with. And once we put the word out that we were doing this project, people would want to be interviewed. They would, you know, from, you know, Scott Billington was terrific. Uh, Ken Ehrlich was terrific. Erica Falls was terrific. Lettucey was, I mean, it was just, it was just one after another. And it made the process smooth. Uh, I think the, probably the biggest hurdle that we faced was we had an air date already set in October and Hurricane Ida came in mm. and knocked out power basically to the city. Uh, mm -hmm. We didn't have power at our house for like 10 days. You can catch the entire interview with Felix, Irma, and Michael at WBGO.org. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Don't forget we have new times for the WBGO Journal Saturday mornings at 5.30 and Sunday evenings at 6.30 right here on WBGO, WBGO.org, and on your mobile devices.